0: Hello, and welcome to co Cast, where game designers Peter Goossens and Michael Kelly talk about cooperative board games. Join us each week as we break down one game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hello, hello, everyone. And today we have a special guest, Dan, from the League of Nonsensical Gamers.
1: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome to you, Dan. We're happy to
2: have you on the show.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. I'm I don't get to talk co-ops a lot, mostly because I don't play them,
0: but I'm I'm excited to talk about the one today. Well, it's funny. So I started reaching out to some of our fellow podcasting buddies, and a lot of them weren't co-op fans. But my goal of this series is, my thought is that everybody likes a co-op, even if it's not your traditional ones that people think of. And so I want people to share their experiences and what they like about their favorite co-ops.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good premise. I like that.
2: Yeah, and it's it's funny, I I didn't think of myself as much of a co-op person either, but especially with this podcast, man, that seems to be all I'm playing. (laughs) And, you know, combine that with gaming with my five-year-old and gaming with my wife, neither of whom want to uh, necessarily fight me or lose in a game. Co-ops are the way to go for the foreseeable future, I think. Well, hold on, you might lose in a game. (laughs) Hopefully you're not playing all co-ops that you just win every time. Well, you know, it's it's a very different experience to lose to an implacable board game that you had no control over and to lose to your your loving husband. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to be to be crushed by the one you cherish. Very different. Especially cuz I can picture you going, "Ha, loser." Well, that's 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 my usual strategy. So see, I have to totally countermand my own instincts to to play with my wife. It's just uh doesn't work out too well. But anyway, all that being said, we have Dan here tonight to help us review a older game, Ghost Stories. Yes, sir. Yeah, so Dan, uh, tell us about the League of Nonsensical Gamers and tell us about uh, yourself and how you got into games and what you're up to lately. Oh, man. Yeah, n- nothing, you know, just a few short questions there. Very. Simple. Yeah, not
1: a problem, not a problem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, let me, let me sit on the couch and go back many years. I don't know, I, I guess I have a, a typical story to most people when they're asked that question. I've pretty much played games my whole life, you know, back with Risk and, you know, Stratego and all those with my dad growing up. I uh, played a lot of poker, which got me into somehow CCGs. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess just the, the, just the kind of the tangible nature of holding a hand of cards and sitting back and just slinging <laughs> them. I, I love that. Um, so I played a lot of Magic when I was younger. That transitioned into the uh, WoW TCG, which I played uh, pretty religiously and extremely competitively um i used to do that all over the place country all over the country actually and and then from there i uh i got into back into board games i guess you could say i played a lot of like Catan in college and things like that but um i guess i got really big into the hobby back in like 2011 again so it's been a good six seven years and haven't looked back but yeah i'm on a podcast the podcast nonsensical gamers we used to have a website. Uh, we've kind of taken a little hiatus from doing our written reviews just just for life. You know, life <laughs> just gets in the way of, of doing that. That's a lot of work. People don't realize it. So, you know, good on you guys for continuing the podcast, too, because don't they say like after what if you've made it 10 episodes, you've kind of established the habit so you can keep going. So that's, that's pretty awesome. I do enjoy this one as well. So I like listening to you guys.
0: Cool. See, you don't have to love co-ops to love the podcast. So tell all your friends
2: start listening. Yep. And Peter, you always keep track of this. What number are we on, by the way? What episode is this? This is episode 21. Nice. So we've doubled
0: the usual quitting point. That seems pretty good. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. And we've started drinking on our episodes. So welcome to the first night of that.
1: I was going to say, you've made it.
0: (laughs) I I think that that might just be you, Peter. Uh, I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, I haven't started (laughs) drinking yet. Maybe that would make it more entertaining. Oh yeah, definitely jump in. All right, so Mike, let's talk about what
2: we're talking about tonight. <laughs> okay, so yeah, we're reviewing. Uh, and was
0: this a request from Reddit? H- how did we get this one suggested to us? Yeah, we asked for a couple suggestions of games people wanted to hear about, and this one came up as you know one of the top picks. Yeah, so Ghost Stories, uh, one of the older games we've reviewed, and uh, I guess this
2: is by Repos. Which let's see, are they are they owned by Asmode now? Yes. I guess they have been for a long time.
1: Yeah, I think they're one of one, one of their original studios.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, I think, is this one still in print? I definitely saw it. Like, I was able to buy it on Amazon if I so chose. Yeah. But I don't know if they uh, they, they had uh, two expansions, if I remember correctly. And I don't know if those are still available for purchase or not.
1: The the base game has been in print, I think, pretty consistently. The two expansions were hard to find for about two or three years, I guess. And I think white it's White Moon and right. Black Secret, I think, are the two expansions. I think they reprinted them in like 2015 or 16. So okay. I think there's copies out there, but I don't know. I'm not sure what the, the availability is. But I know sure. they definitely reprinted them because they were long out of print.
0: And we're mostly going to talk about the base game today, because neither Mike or I have played any of the expansions. Dan, you can certainly chime in with any expansion knowledge you have, but I've only played the base game myself.
1: The best part about this game is the promos, but I'll I'll talk about that later.
2: (laughs) All right. Yeah, I think you have a couple of those, Peter, but uh, yeah, we haven't had too much experience with that either. Except I know there's there's a Chuck Norris one floating around, right? That seems pretty fun. And a Bruce Lee one, too.
1: Chuck no rice. Chuck, no, no rice. Rice. <laughs> That's That's the best part about the, is the, the punny names. The bad
2: puns. <laughs> uh, so, Peter, you want to tell us about the theme of the game?
0: Yeah, so in Ghost Stories, you play Taoist monks who are trying to defend your village against this bad guy named Wu Fang And his legions of ghosts who are trying to haunt the town reclaim his ashes so he can bring himself back to life.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, I just think of Big Trouble in Little China, basically, whenever I play this. Although, instead of uh, Jack Burton, I'm a uh, you know Shaolin monk or whatever.
1: Yep, that's pretty close.
2: But yeah, so you're you're protecting uh, the villages in your town, trying to keep the uh, the town from being haunted. And uh, you have to hold out until Wu Feng actually manifests in town. And then once you defeat him, you win the game. Or if you're on the, the higher difficulty settings, he manifests a whole bunch of times and <laughs> tries to defeat you in many different ways. All right, Mike, so do you want to hit the rules real quick? Sure. So uh, this game is for from one to four players. And uh, if you have fewer players, it gets a lot more complicated. And basically you, uh, you have some sort of not even AI, but you just have like kind of non-player boards that hold some of the ghosts. And uh, you can use the powers of the non-players. But for now, focusing on the four-player game. Basically, you should sit around the table because each player will have a color and be on one of the four sides of the board. And they have three spots for potential ghosts. And on your turn, you'll first resolve any uh, ghost abilities of ghosts that already exist... The most common ones there are you might roll a curse die which uh, has negative effects or you might move a ghost with a haunting power one space which is how the the town gets haunted and one of the potential game loss conditions. What usually happens is you resolve those effects, you draw a new ghost and place them on the appropriate color, so the ghosts will be red, green, blue or yellow, so they'll go on one of the empty spaces of your choice on that player's board. And some ghosts are also black in color, and they must be placed on your own board. Now, it's worth noting, if you already have three ghosts, so your board is already full, then you don't place a ghost, but you uh, do take one chi damage, so you lose one of your life, basically. So once you've handled the ghost actions, then you can optionally move your monk. There are nine tiles on the board, so a three-by-three grid. And you can move one space, and that includes diagonally or orthogonally then you can either choose to activate and get the help of the villager whose tile you're on, which will do things such as giving you tokens to fight the ghosts, or giving you these little Buddha statues that can uh, stop a ghost from appearing altogether. Or, if you don't want to call on the help of the villager, if you are adjacent to a ghost on uh, one of those outer player boards, you can attempt to banish that ghost by rolling these three dice... And the dice show uh, the different colors in the game, as well as a white wild color. And each of the ghosts will have between 1 and 4 life of a given color. And if you, in the die rolls, can match or exceed that color, and you can supplement this with some powers from the board and also with these tau tokens of the different colors, if you can at least equal or exceed the results needed for that ghost, then you banish the ghost and they are removed. It's worth noting, though, that if you do not... Uh, reach the minimum number, no damage is done. There is no memory on these ghosts for how close they came to being banished. Some ghosts will penalize you when you uh, banish them. Some ghosts will give you rewards. And that's uh, basically it. You are trying to hold off these ghosts until Wu Fang, who shuffled into uh, near the bottom of the deck, appears. If you can banish him, then you win. You can lose the game if all of the monks lose their uh, final chi and are basically defeated. You also lose the game if uh, too many of the village tiles are haunted. And then finally, uh, if you do not defeat Wu Fang before those 10 extra ghosts that are underneath him are drawn, then you uh, also run out of time and lose the game that way.
0: All right, Mike, well, thanks for that rules explanation. Uh, now I'm go- we're going to get into our top five. So if you haven't listened before, welcome. Thanks for joining us. What we do each episode is cover our top five things we think you need to know about the game. And we start with our number five, which is the least important thing. And we go all the way to our number one, which we view as like the defining characteristic of the game. So Dan, you are our guest. Why don't you start out with your number five?
1: For number five, I'm going to go with the theme. For anyone knows me feudal japan ninjas any anything asian inspired is is pretty much my favorite theme in any board game or tabletop game in general so this one really speaks to me from that angle i think it's really well implemented i think the powers of the different ninjas are unique and they're fun and they're intuitive um kind of within the gameplay there's not too much extraneous anything So it's very zen for me, (laughs) the experience uh, of playing this game and kind of figuring out the puzzle. So all in all, I really like the theme. Um, You can tie that in with artwork. I think the artwork is uh, phenomenal from Piero. Um, He does a really good job. Very vivid um, and lively. So it really hits the table with a nice presence.
0: Yeah, I never thought I'd hear anybody describe ghost stories as zen, but there you go. Number five for Dan. It is a (laughs) zen experience to play ghost stories. Yeah.
1: some people like to get kicked in the n- nards they find it peaceful <laughs>
2: yeah no I, this didn't make my top five dan but i'm also a big fan of uh, similar themes in games and just in media in general mm-hmm. and uh, especially kind of like the spirit world like the sort of stuff you see in spirited away and yep. uh similar things or you know i used to watch uh ninja scroll a lot when i was a kid so oh yeah Oh yeah! Not that kids should watch that. Please <laughs> don't let your kids watch Ninja Scroll. That was definitely a poor choice on <laughs> one of my parents. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, just uh, like sort of the the spirit world and like the kami and all those kind of things. I've always been really fascinated with. Yeah, so I'm I'm with you there.
1: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Legends of the Five Ring guy too from the CCG.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, me too. I I used to play the heck out of that game. So uh, my number five is the mechanic of choosing whether to use the village action or combat on your turn, and also just the variety of village actions themselves. And I really enjoy this because it is uh, one of those really, really tough choices, because all you can do on your turn is move and uh, execute either a combat or a village action. And some of the village actions are just fabulous, like you want to do them all the time. You always want to have two buddhas ready to put on these spaces. You always want to be rolling the dice and getting more Tao tokens to fight the ghosts more effectively. But you have these ghosts just constantly ramping up and filling the boards and taking away your chi and haunting tiles. And I really like that interplay between the two. That being said, there are some negatives. I've, I've always found some of the village actions a little underpowered and a little dull, That's just a slight caveat to this in that I'll I'll see myself using the same maybe three or four village actions almost exclusively and really ignoring some of the other ones. So it's a bit of a wasted opportunity. Not sure if the expansions uh, improve on that balance a bit. Maybe they do. But at least in the base game, I do feel like some of the village tiles are close to useless. Maybe that's my own failure in strategy, but that's one negative to
0: what is otherwise a nice balance and tension between villagers and uh, combat. Well, yeah. And sometimes they're not even useful until later in the game. So one of the villagers does resurrect one of your characters. Well, if none of your characters are dead, you can't use that space. One of the things removes a ghost. Well, most of the time you're not going to use it unless that ghost is far away or somebody you just can't deal with. Yeah. So I think they're very situational, some of them, and some of them are always useful. I, I think that's where you're coming from on it. Yeah,
2: yeah I, I guess you're right. So, I mean, it's not it's not a huge deal. It's my number five. And, again, it's mostly a uh, pro, not a con. But, uh, yeah, definitely there is a lot of situation oh, situationality. Is that even a word? <laughs> you're <laughs> like the you English said, teacher, man. It is now. <laughs> hey, man, I, I've, I've never used it, so <laughs> we'll say it isn't. Yeah. But, yeah, definitely uh, situational location. Yeah, and the,
1: the expansion adds um, one new village tile, and then there's another mini-expansion. Uh, the guardhouse that you can add and right then you shuffle all them in and pick nine so
2: peter has that yeah. one so yeah, i would be interested to try that out too i just change it up a bit yeah
1: and the one in white moon is pretty it's pretty good it's the kung fu school Ooh. i don't recall the the cost of it but i believe it allows you to kill all ghosts of the specific color of the uh monk that uses it so it's uh oh wow yeah, that's fantastic yeah, it's a pretty good ability
0: yeah definitely all right peter how about you what's your number five Cool. Well, my number five is it scales strangely, is how I phrased (laughs) it. Um, So when you're playing this game solo or with two people, you have two boards not in play, but then you have these tokens that you can use to use the actions of the other players. And it just, it's a little weird and it doesn't work exactly right. I mean, it, it works fine, but it feels like this was a four player game and they're like, well, we can't sell it just as a four-player only game, how do we make it work with three and two players, and even solo, and I think it doesn't play as well at those counts, at least that's my feeling from my experiences with the game, I, I, other people may feel differently, but for me it just was a weird, wonky, almost seemed like thrown-in rule to make it work with lower player counts. That's interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I don't disagree, I I've been playing it a lot in preparation for the review at multiple player counts, and... I've enjoyed it at all of them, but it doesn't—it doesn't change the fact that I, I do think it seems like a four-player game where it was uh, sort of tacked on a bit. But I think it was tacked on well. I still find the uh, the the management of like the power tokens to be of an interesting thing to do. Yeah, I was—I
1: was actually that my number four was the scalability because I—I see what you're saying, but I think they did it. I thought they did it pretty well. I mean, I recently actually just played it two-player um, a couple nights ago, and so you had the two neutral power tokens in play and. Mm it was It was interesting to to be able to kind of use those extra powers, how you wanted to use them, and like just playing off that and you know making the center tile a little bit more of a interesting move sometimes, you know with the the base setup, it's not always again situationally where you want to be outside of just being able to move anywhere. So I thought they did pretty well, but I, I do agree it is it's best at four and my thing with co-ops is is I hate quarterbacking. So, yeah. Again, being able to play a co-op at two, three, or four is always a plus for me. Um, so, I thought they did it. I thought they did it well enough. I guess I would say so. I think I think it's a plus for this one because um, I don't think it. I don't think it drags the game in any way. It still flows. Um, you are basically just doing the ghost actions on those neutral players' turns, um, and even then, you are not doing the full ghost action. So it's it's kind of you can kind of plan a little bit, you know, with a little foresight that way. So. I I think it's interesting, Um, but again, for me, being able to play it at at all counts is, is a plus for it.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I agree with you, certainly, on the it makes the middle tile more useful Because a lot of times in four-player games, unless I really just need to run across the board, I'm not going to use that middle tile. Mm -hmm. And I do agree that it is—it makes it more valuable in two and three-player. And because you have to move more in two and three-player, it's an interesting choice also because it makes that tile even more valuable in multiple ways.
1: Yeah, and I I remember actually in that play we just had the other night, just a a couple of times, you know, verbally saying, you know, if we went to the middle, we, you know we waste a turn but we get those two power tokens back um so it was a really interesting choice for us to to make between the two of us
0: and you just hope that middle tile isn't something like resurrect somebody which is totally almost <laughs> useless in two-player yeah, game but then you're exactly. going there literally just to get the power tokens which is is not ideal no
1: no so i see what you're saying and i agree it is a best at four
0: all right mike what's your number four speaking of four So my number four,
2: um, something that Dan mentioned already in the theme, is the varied character powers. And this is mostly a pro because three of the four colors I love and really find exciting. And just to explain for those who haven't played the game, each of the four uh, different colors has a different sort of variant on a similar power on the front and the back. So, uh, for example, the yellow one gives, uh, basically bonuses for combat, but on one side gets a free Tau token, on the other side gets to kind of cast this Curse of Weakness on a Ghost and make them easier for everybody to defeat. So I really do enjoy that. I like varied powers in general. Let me guess, you don't like red's powers? Yeah, so this is a common complaint in the game, and it's not even that one side of red is that bad. So red is, uh, the movement one, and one side lets you fly anywhere on the board, so basically take two moves instead of one. And the other one lets you move any player one space. The one that lets you move any player is great. Uh, You can take anybody on one of the outskirt tiles and place them in the center and give them free reign to go wherever they want on their turn. So that's certainly useful. But yeah, that other one where they can fly themselves is just pretty much objectively worse than the other version. And all of them kind of have that. Like I would say, the, (laughs) at least in my experience, the Curse of Weakness is generally a good deal stronger than the getting a Tau token because it can affect all the players. But the red one I find the most annoying. And except for in Solo, where in Solo, being able to use a power token to move to any place is incredibly important. Yeah. Except in Solo, um, I wish they had like maybe made it a bit more powerful. Like maybe you could move a monster to a place instead of uh, just being able to move yourself a bit better. So that that's a minor gripe, though. Um, I think, uh, especially if you play with the move other characters' red power, except in Solo, you still have a nice amount of variety with the other colors. And it does make the game feel a bit different, especially with, like, the blue one either lets you take two combats or two villager actions or one of each. So those sides feel very different in games where you uh, try one side or the other. So, again, it's still overall a pro, but uh, some caveats there with sort of how the balance worked. So I guess my my five and four are both very similar. I like the variety, but feel like maybe they could have done a better job
0: making things feel a bit closer to each other. That's where I am. So sticking with the variety theme, my number four is I think the ghosts act and feel different from each other. And it's pretty hard to do considering they only have a very few number of special abilities. But they sometimes have something that happens when you put the ghost out. And then there's a middle power, which kind of happens every turn. And then there's something that happens when you defeat them. And even though there are only a couple things that could happen, I do think they varied them quite a bit considering how simple they kept it. So I guess they did a good job within their design constraints of making the ghost feel different.
2: Yeah. No, that's, that's yeah. That's definitely a good call. I'd agree with that. All right, Dan, what's uh, your number three? Um,
1: my number three is the, it was actually the player powers, to be honest with you. I really like those as well. Kind of like I alluded to in the uh, my number five. I feel they just add just a really nice aspect to the puzzle. You know, Mike, you touched on it too, like that that red player I agree is probably my least favorite to play. But in like a two player game, when you can spend that neutral token to use it, again it gives you that extra branch on the tree to kind of decide how you wanna do things and could you do this versus this and but in a four-player, it does feel like, oh man, I'm the red player, yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. So you know, the, all the other guys have really cool powers, and I love the way, like you, like you mentioned again too, just that you know they're just slight variations of each other when you flip the board. So you don't, you don't really feel yourself like you know, quote cheating to get the better side. You know, you can randomly sure. really pick one and still be happy with it. I think they're sufficiently interesting. I guess would be the way I would state it.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. So my number three, and this is a mechanic I like in uh, in games in general, and actually one we're investigating for a game we're working on, but that's uh, that the enemies get assigned to player boards, and in a way, those characters sort of own those enemies. I like this for a few reasons. Number one, it kind of streamlines the game, because certain players, again, especially in a four-player game where you each have your own board... Certain players are in charge of dealing with the ghosts in front of them, which uh, makes everything a bit more organized, and you don't have to necessarily remember everything that's going on with every ghost. But what I really like is how it increases the uh, cooperative landscape of the game, because you know when these certain ghosts, sometimes with really nasty powers, are going to activate, and all the other players can work to take care of those ghosts before your turn comes around— So if I see that uh, there's, like, some really terrible haunting ghosts on Red, that leads to all the discussions of, okay, who's going to go use the villager that pushes back the haunters, or who's going to go take care of those ghosts? So I think not just kind of simplifying the game with the ownership of the enemies and placing them on the player boards, but also um, just the, the way it kind of increases the tactics of the game, because the enemies don't, like, all activate at once. You get kind of this staggered activation. And heck, even the choice of like where to place an enemy, which of the three uh, open spots, um, and which enemies to place on a Buddha you've placed to destroy them immediately, all those kind of things I really like. So the way the enemies get placed and assigned to certain players, uh, one of the things I really like about the game. So definitely a full pro there.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good one. I, I agree.
2: Agree, yeah, that is a great one.
0: Cool, my number three is probably going to be a lot of people's number one, but my number three is this game is very hard. So there's no overwhelming design discussion here. This is just before you get this game, no going in that is going to kick you in the teeth. (laughs) And sometimes there's just nothing you're going to be able to do about it. And you're going to go in and there's going to be a puzzle there that's laid out before you. And that's one of the nice parts about it. It is puzzly, but sometimes you're just not going to be able to overcome that puzzle. And certainly your first few games, probably 10 games, it's going to be very hard to win. Agreed. That
2: definitely happened to me in some of the recent games I was playing. <laughs> Especially if you go beyond that uh, that initiation level, it certainly ramps up pretty quickly. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, that, that was my number two. So, it um, oh, well, the you difficulty because, I mean, one of the things for me to really enjoy a co-op is the fact that it's just going to just repeatedly beat me over the head. <laughs> when I first got introduced to co-ops, um, the first two I played were Pandemic and Flashpoint. And I beat them the first three times i played each and for me that really just was like okay like this is it like this is all you got but um i do i still remember the first time we played ghost stories and i was like holy moly (laughs) like like this thing this thing is just like you said the 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 tactical puzzle that it presents is just um it's fun to solve because it is so difficult and and that kind of links into your your talk before about the monsters like I remember the other night we were playing and it was like, you're just moseying along and we're taking care of that one. And we're taking care of that one back to hell. You demon ghost (laughs) thing. And then all of a sudden you get one of those ghosts that comes out and spawns another ghost. Then that one hit one and spawned another ghost. All of a sudden we had three new ghosts on my turn. And it was like, well, that escalated quickly, <laughs> and then we like, right. and then we like, we all like moved to the edge of our seat, which was which was cool. So it's you know, it has that the game has that ability to kind of lull you into a sense of comfort mm-hmm. and then just wake you up immediately. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it's it's fun and it makes for some uh, some interesting discussion at the table.
0: Right, and this is actually we're not going to do a design discussion on this this week, but it was something that that I thought of as potentially being the design discussion is difficulty of gameplay versus difficulty in the challenge of the game. Mm-hmm. And so it has an interesting balance because this is a really simple, straightforward game. You're literally moving and attacking or moving and doing what it says on the tile. I think you could play this with very young kids, but the difficulty of the game makes it so it it isn't that simple, straightforward game. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you do need to use some tactics and you do need to, even with very basic, simple things really challenge yourself. Yeah.
1: No, even, you know, to Mike's point, the player boards, like just having that physical location of a ghost and that you have to be in front of it, even just a place of Buddha, like that little bit of a mechanic that you can't just put a Buddha anywhere. You have to be in front of the space. Like just that little bit adds that extra layer of difficulty on it. Just these, every little thing about it just makes it um, that much harder. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I mean, clearly the game is hard, and that's a major like kind of point in its mind. But this week, I was trying to like stick to the uh, the sort of design mechanics and choices in the game. So I think I think my my number one will address the difficulty somewhat, but my number two was uh, I really love the resource management in this game. And just kind of rundown for those who don't know the game too well. So you have uh, Tau tokens that can be used to boost your combat results. You have your chi, your life force, which is not only uh, taken away by ghosts and things sometimes, by the curse die, but also can be used as a resource to activate some of the more powerful villager uh, tiles. You've got your yin-yang token that can uh, get you an extra villager action or unflip a tile and that you can get back by defeating some uh, more powerful ghosts. And then at uh, three or fewer players, you get power tokens that allow you to use the uh, powers of the missing players and then you have to go to the middle to get them. And I just love the the tactical choices that are given by all of these different knobs I can mess with and all these different uh, resources I can play around with. Because it's never a really easy choice. Well, sometimes it's a bit of an easy choice, I guess, if you need to defeat a ghost and you need those Tau tokens. But especially the, the yin-yang and the power tokens, like, those are limited resources that have very uh, big effects. And uh, it's not always clear when you should use them. Like, which ghost is the one, you know, you might use them to to help you defeat a ghost this turn and then somebody way worse comes out next turn and you really wish you still had those things available so i really like how the game has so many different things to play around with in the sort of tactical puzzle they're presenting you with yeah that's a great one
0: yeah no i mean it wasn't on my list but it probably should have been i mean my my number two kind of ties into that which is they're very simple actions in the game like i was we saying earlier you either move an attack or you move an act But within those, because all the different tiles in the game have different actions, every time you attack, the ghost has different things that are associated with the attack on it. And you have your player board, which gives you special powers. So in a very simple framework, they still present what feels like a lot of choices. And I think we all touched on this with some of our lower down points is everything in the game seems to have a lot of different choices associated with it. And so you feel like you have a lot of agency. Even though sometimes it just comes down to a dice roll. Mm-hmm.
2: All right, so uh, b- big moment, Dan. What's your number one? So this one, this is kind of
1: weird, but my number one is I don't know why I like this game, but I do. <laughs> um, because if if you took a step back and looked at kind of a lot of my gaming preferences, you know, non co op, super strategic things like that, this game is the exact opposite of that. It's a co op game. It's super tactical. The escalation in this game is all negative. There's no kind of climactic arc for the players from a, like, they don't advance. They always just keep the same power. They keep the same power level. While, you know, the resource management piece, I guess, is a slight kind of escalation piece to it. But again, like, most of the escalation in the game is just negative. Um, And it just, like, some people might not like that. But I I love the puzzle that it generates. Um, Again, tactical play is not my strong suit. I love heavier strategic games where I can sit down and plan something out. This game doesn't let you do that. This game is going to keep you on your toes. You know, the random card flips, the the rolling of the die, everything is about, and maybe it's because of like what I do for a living, but everything is about mitigating the risk kind of thing. You know what I mean? So maybe that that appeals to my inner auditor um, (laughs) in (laughs) in that way. But it's, you know what I mean? Like you're trying to put yourself in the best position to win. And I know that rubs some people the wrong way, but I I really enjoy that, and I can get behind that because I I do find that interesting. Let's get all the little was it the input randomness uh, out of the way, and then let's just play whatever. <laughs> like it's a it's a fun game. Like I just have a blast playing it. Um, it's it is my favorite co op of the limited that I have on my list of co ops. I like <laughs> it is my favorite. So yeah, the the number one thing for me is it just baffles me why I like this and that to me makes it a pretty good
2: game <laughs> that's awesome uh, i love that we could have you on for uh, your favorite game that's awesome or yeah. not your favorite game sorry uh, to clarify your favorite co-op <laughs> favorite sure co-op it's... favorite co-op yeah 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 not, not your favorite game <laughs> overall probably
1: no not at all <laughs> but yes i do like
0: this one all right mike so what's your number one
2: so it's interesting i i i moved this one around a bit and i'm not sure if it maybe ended up too high and this is my only unmitigated con, but it doesn't happen in every game. That's why I'm not sure if it should be number one. But I do think it's a weird design choice, and one I'm not sure I agree with entirely. So basically it is, and you just mentioned this in a way, Dan, I feel like the game has the potential for a complete lack of ramp-up, and a complete lack of kind of increasing tension. Mm -hmm. Now, it depends on how the game goes, of course, but um, even at some of the higher difficulty settings, except for when Wu Feng comes out, if you don't get a string of those spawner uh, ghosts in a row, if you get lucky with a couple of combat rolls, if you can get the Buddhas down in the right place, I, I would actually disagree slightly and say that you can become in a place better than where you started. You can have that like sure. little weakness uh, charm on the board, you can have multiple Tau tokens, you can even have more Chi than you started with. Now, it doesn't happen every game, and definitely more likely to happen at the easier difficulty levels, which, to be honest, is where I've played more, so this might not apply as much to somebody playing a really high difficulty setting. But it just is interesting to note that, except for Wu Feng coming out multiple times at, like, the Nightmare difficulty and such, there's nothing inherent in the design that automatically makes the game ramp up. Which is just sort of a... It's an odd design choice, I guess, with... And this is an older co-op, to be fair. But it's an odd design choice, like, kind of compared to more modern co-ops. Where often, you know, you'll have, like, tiers of enemies, or things that slowly burn, or resources that run out and you can't get back. And just the fact that this game can kind of reach a, a stasis point where you can be fine, and, and, like, nothing really bad happens that you can't handle is just a little bit odd. Again, maybe it shouldn't be my number one. As I'm talking about it, I feel like it shouldn't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's 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 the only like sort of major full complaint I have. And it doesn't happen every game,
0: so I don't even want everyone to think that it's like this big negative for the game overall. No, I do think that ties into my number one though. And my number one is that I feel the game is pretty swingy. Oh yeah. A- as you said, ghosts can stack up on themselves. You could have, you know, two three ghosts come out on one turn. Your dice rolls really matter. Now you can mitigate that by attacking in the corner. One thing we never talked about is when you're in the corner, you can actually attack two different ghosts if you're adjacent to two different ghosts. So you can mitigate the swinginess that way. But there is still a lot of swinginess. Each of the dice only has... Each color on it once. Now you do have the wild card as well so any given color has a one in three chance of coming up but there's no way to re-roll. I mean there's one player has that character. You do have the tau tokens that you can pick up but even the way you gain those for most characters is random by going on one tile and rolling two dice and you get those two color tokens. But even if you have three of the four tokens you need going in to attack this ghost if you never roll that other color you basically just lost an entire turn. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no way to get that action back. Now, the good news is you also didn't have to spend those tokens, but the game has basically just started ramping up. And as Mike said, if you get really lucky and you're rolling well all day, it can go the other way, right? It it never ramps up. And so they're counting on the luck and the swinginess of the dice to, to increase that ramp up. And so for me... That's one of the things you should know going in. Is just there's going to be games where it's going to be super hard because you can't roll anything you need. And there are going to be games that's super easy because everything just turns up roses.
1: Yep. Amen to that. I had one of those the other day. Like it was, we beat it and it was fairly simple. A couple of moments of tension, but it was fairly simple. And then the time before that, it was like, hey guys you're not going to win this it's turn four (laughs) why don't you just start over right (laughs) so but you know what it's it's yeah it's silly (laughs) all right
0: well let's end with dan because he went over a lot of his final thoughts but mike let's get to your final thoughts first so yeah it's it's interesting uh how i felt coming into this game because i hadn't played it
2: in a few years it was one of the first co-ops i played and not one of my favorites so I expected to come in here and play it a few more times and get familiar with it and be like, man, this game sucks. And that was not my experience at all. I really enjoyed it, both playing uh, solo and playing up to uh, two and four players. I found the experience uh, really kind of exciting. I, I liked the the tactical decisions I was making, as I highlighted in a lot of the uh, the pros I was talking about back then. I don't know what back then I mean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> back in the day. Back five minutes ago. And, uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed myself. I I think the game really holds up well, considering its age, and it doesn't really show its age much. Now, yes, it can be swingy, yes, uh, the ramp-up isn't there always, and yes, the dice can just hate you some days. It is not a great feeling to be destroyed by the game because of, uh, several bad dice rolls in a row. But I really, really enjoy the tactical puzzle. I like the theme. Uh, This is a game I would not have uh, any problem playing, and considering how old it is, maybe I'll feel the same way in another decade. I think uh, this game has held up well, so yeah, if you haven't played it before, uh, get a
0: chance to. Try it out. It's it's a fun one. Yeah, I'm going to agree with a lot of the sentiments there. I I remember liking the game and not loving it when I played it back in the day, and it's funny because we've been working on a game for Mayday over the last couple years, and through years and years of development, we're came to this point where we're like, we can really simplify things to either moving and attacking or moving and doing this action. And then if we had just played Ghost Stories, (laughs) again, you know, (laughs) over that time, (laughs) we would have come to that decision way quicker. So I think they did make a lot of clever design decisions in the game. One of the great parts about it is you can play it with kids. Some of the artwork's a little bit questionable when you're talking about younger kids, but I think, for the most part, you know, it's not you know nudity or anything like that. I think it just can be a little bit freaky for small kids. <laughs> freaky is a good word for it, I think. <laughs> yeah, but
1: I mean, they're they're coming from hell, Peter.
2: Well, yes, <laughs> I
0: understand that. They could have come a little more cartoony. That's all. <laughs> hey, look, it's Casper. <laughs> What's Casper doing at this game? Oh, that's funny. So, but, I mean, the actions themselves are simple enough that I played it with both of my kids individually as two-player games. So I played it with my 10-year-old and my 6-year-old, and both of them got the grasp of it and actually wanted to play it again. So it is a game that you can play with younger kids, and they'll get it, you know, because the actions are so simple and straightforward. So I think it did a really good job of making a nice, interesting, gateway-ish co-op that... Can also be really hard. All right, how about you, Dan?
1: I mean, I, I said a lot of what what I would say in my number one, with just the the sheer fact that I don't know why I like this, but I do. <laughs> um, I just, I think it's just well designed. I, I do. To, to your point, I haven't played this in when, until you asked me to come on and talk about it. I was like, oh, I should play it again. And I looked at the box and I was like, man, I haven't played this in about three years, and. Um, I I still enjoyed it I taught it to um, to some new people and they that had never played it and they really enjoyed it too and these are you know hardcore gamers and they they really just enjoyed the puzzle that was presented Um, the other thing to kind of say and I know we we talked on base game mostly but the two expansions they don't add a lot but they add a really nice little twist to it Um, I can speak mostly to to white moon the second one but it adds these little villager tiles to the village and like you're trying to, you know, save these. So it almost adds like a little pickup and deliver element to it. But if you deliver these villagers to the, you know, the portal safely, they give you additional powers of their family. So it's another kind of way for your, you know, your ninjas to kind of ramp up on their side a little bit. So just something a little like that. And then I think the third expansion, you can actually do one versus many where one of the players plays as Wu Feng versus the players, if you'd Mm. like to. So it adds that extra dimension too. But again, all the simplicity of the mechanics that I think we've all agreed that we really enjoy, it all remains the same. And they've just been able to kind of seamlessly integrate a couple of extra mechanics to, to just kind of play off the existing structure. So I, I really like. It. I am mean, a big Antoine Balza fan. I, I like his versatility. I like his the simplicity of his designs. I, I think it's kind of telling why he does so much Asian inspired uh, themes because I think you know again back to that Zen that kind of that simplicity that everything that his designs are for me is very representative in kind of Asian culture and you know theory. Um, so, um, I, I great game. I like it.
0: Cool. Very cool. And it's funny, I didn't realize that this one also added a one versus many element. Pandemic did that as well in one of their earlier expansions. And it's funny, now all the games are going the opposite way. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say,
2: because I remember also, um, I believe, the first or the second expansion of the Lord of the Rings co op. Do y'all remember that one? Yep. The uh, Reiner Nutzia one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, it's, it's really interesting that. Back in the day, it's like every co-op was like, well, people don't want to play real co-ops, so we'd better add in this one versus many. And I don't remember any of them being well-received. I know I didn't like the Pandemic one. I hated the Lord of the Rings one. So even back then, it seemed like a bad idea, and I don't know what audience they were trying to sell it to. (laughs) but, uh, But yeah, definitely now it's like... You know, everything is, oh, uh, let's take Mansions of Madness and make it fully co-op. Let's take Descent and make it fully co-op. Let's take Imperial Assault. Well, I guess those are all Fantasy Flight. Maybe it's just them, but definitely seems to be a uh, trend in
0: the other direction, which I appreciate because I don't really like one versus many. I don't either. Usually, yeah. Yep, I totally agree. All right, so now we're going to get into our design discussion, and we're going to do something a little different. Normally, we take one aspect of the game and talk about that, but this time, because Unpub is coming up, I want to talk about just prototype conventions in general. Now, those of you who aren't game designers, don't run away screaming, because actually Dan wasn't a game designer before the last couple of years, right? And you still enjoyed going to these conventions.
1: I do. I, I really enjoy uh, prototyping. I find it fun to be kind of in at the ground floor, seeing how, you know, the, the sausage is made, so to speak. So I, I really enjoy that part of it.
0: And I will say it goes both ways, because as we've mentioned in the past, our friend Jerry hates playing prototypes. And I mean, he is our primary person in our game group, and he won't even play any of our games. I mean, he certainly will, but he, he does not enjoy it. So it's certainly not for everybody, but there are a lot of people that do enjoy it. And the other thing is at some of these conventions, you might get to meet some of your favorite designers. So it's not even just seeing a game in pre-pressed form, but some of these people that you've really enjoyed their games, you get to meet them. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, sometimes you get to see that they're human because some of their early <laughs> prototypes are going to be awful. I know some of ours are awful. <laughs> it's definitely true, sadly. <laughs> Amen to
1: that. That's the thing. Like, and that's, you know, you mentioned, like, I, I recently kind of got into it the last, I don't have any public published games, but I've i got a couple in the hopper that I've really enjoyed kind of working on, but it, it's been really humbling the, to be able to sit with these other designers, you know, yourselves included and just kind of pick your brains and see that you are just a normal, you know, person and that you guys fail fast, just like everyone else and just pick yourself up and keep churning. I mean, design is just iteration in this, in this hobby.
2: Totally. Totally.
1: And it's, uh, it's, it's really nice to see that, you know, some people, you know, even, you know, you guys work with Lonius and a couple of other big guys, but you know, even those guys don't get it right on the first try. Um so it's that that alone is kind of inspirational in itself.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks man. I, I've never been called inspirational before so I appreciate it. <laughs> I don't think he was talking to you, Mike. Oh, well. Mike, I play Pete. a lot
1: of your prototypes. You're just never there for it. Unfortunately, <laughs> Peter subjects me to them and I enjoy them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah, so um I guess we can just uh jump in and give some thoughts, suggestions, those kind of things.
0: Peter, you want to start us off with one of yours? Well, sure. My number one thing that I love about prototype conventions, and this works even now we've got a local monthly meetup where we all bring our prototypes and play them. The nice part about that is it provides you with a deadline. And I don't know about you guys when you were in school, but I was certainly somebody who was up all night the night before a project was due working on it. And that seems to be the case for these conventions (laughs) as well. You put a deadline in front of you, and it really gives you a goal to work toward. It's like, all right, I only have three more weeks to work on this thing, and it's not even close to ready. Like, let's push. Where sometimes if you don't have that deadline, I think it's easy to sit down in front of Netflix that night or (laughs) play, play a different game, you know, one that's already published and doesn't, like, drive you crazy trying to figure out how to fix it. So I think that deadline is probably, for me, the number one thing that really makes me enjoy these conventions.
1: You find that enjoyable? That's funny. <laughs> the the What is it, Use stress? Is that the positive stress?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I don't agree that I find it enjoyable, but I find it useful. Uh, we, we have Unpub coming up, as Peter mentioned, and Peter's like, hey, uh, the game we're supposed to show there. You better get these pieces ready. I'm like, yep, I guess I'll actually work on that, because I've been putting it off for a month. So, uh, yeah, d- definitely having that, that deadline and kind of... Something to combat the procrastination. The way I did this was sort of advice to people going to these, especially if they are designers. So uh, it sounds like you all might have some other things to say, so that's good, because that way we'll have a variety of things. But uh, my my first piece of advice, if you're a, a designer interested in going to Unpub or a similar convention, is to have a lot of practice explaining your game... And I mean not just the mechanics and how to play it, which is super important. Make sure you can teach it in your sleep and teaching it in a way that's quick and gets them into the game as fast as possible. But also be ready with some kind of thematic hook or some kind of hook in general. Be able to uh, describe the game sort of like the elevator pitch. Be ready to describe the game in a way that immediately lets it stand out. So, like, this is the only game... Uh, it's the only real-time game with Ninja where you throw throwing stars at goblins attacking a castle. You know, that sounds ridiculous now that I said it, but like you know you're the only one who made this game, and let them get that immediately. Let, let them have that kind of hook to get their interest peaked right away. So that'd be my first piece of advice, that you practice uh, explaining both how to play the game in a concise way, and also uh, what makes the game unique or cool.
1: That's funny. I My first unpub, um, I guess which two years ago when i was actually showing a game on the way down so i live about maybe like 40 minutes from baltimore and i was repeatedly just talking the rules out loud in my car and timing it (laughs) to see how long i could do it and you'd be surprised just kind of repeating it to yourself and you seeing where you get hung up and you know will the players get hung up on that and it just it's it's a really good exercise um so I, i completely agree with what you said there It made just telling people in real life that much easier, you know, because you can get some anxiety at these things. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of pressure. People are judging your creative work, which is nerve wracking to begin with. So, yeah, I think that that's spot on. Just being able to kind of present it and do it in a fluid way is awesome. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Well, and here's the other thing you learn from that process. You learn if your game has a hook. Mm -hmm. If you can't come up with a reason why somebody should sit down at your table and play the game... Then you need to work on something. You need to figure out a theme that works better, or you need to find an interesting mechanic that would make them want to sit down and play it. It can't be just, oh, it's a worker placement game where you move cubes from here to there and do something else. I mean, that's no one's going to sit down for that. I mean, some people probably would, but you know, if they had a choice, you've really got to catch them with that hook. And the other thing is, you were saying, where are you getting caught up in the rules? That's sometimes a hint to yourself. to simplify that rule or cut that rule completely it's like wait a minute why do i have this one exception here like everything else flows so smoothly you know and teaching the game a hundred times you're going to see that so sometimes it's not even the player's reaction that you benefit most from it's just from trying to teach the game to somebody else and seeing where you're getting stuck even explaining the rules
2: no absolutely so dan what's uh I guess uh, besides what we've already agreed to, what what are some thoughts you have on these conventions, or advice for uh, designers, or even playtesters going to them?
1: Yeah, so the one thing I was I was uh, kind of not surprised by, but I, I positively, I guess surprised by would be the the thing was that the first time I kind of put my game on the table, you know, people were really commenting about the look of it. So at these at these conventions, again, I know. You know, fail fast. You know, get something on the table. Write it down, on note cards. That's kind of what you do at your house and stuff like that. But at these conventions, I've found, um, you know, the, just the two years doing it again. But if you put just a little bit of effort into making your prototype look presentable and look good and have some form of table presence, again, kind of hooks into the well, hooks into the hook, um, <laughs> in that you know, people are at these bigger conventions, like, you know, for an Umth pub, for instance, you know, there's, there's 1,200 people wandering around here. There's 75, 85 tables, a lot of games to choose from a lot of designers. You need, you need to kind of pull someone in visually, and then you can hook them with the theme as well. And I've just noticed, you know, it was, it was really kind of awesome to see that, you know, all that effort I put into my prototype, you know, the 8, nine, ten hours cutting things and making colorful like cards and things like that. And, you know, a lot of people said, you know, the reason I sat down was because I really, I saw your, your, your prototype from across the room and it looked interesting. So sometimes I think, yeah, just putting that small bit of effort in, unless you're like a, you know, a big name, like a, a Lonnie a Davia or something where like, you know, people will just fanboy to you and play anything on <laughs> note cards. I, I think it really helps if you can just put a little bit of out. I'm not saying go out and buy like, complete component sets or you know stonemaier clay pieces or anything like that but find some clip art you know that's presentable print the thing in color uh you know little things like that i think really go a long way to to pulling people into your game and making them interested in it and when they're interested in it you're going to get better feedback i think
0: Yeah. Two points on that. Number one is we have worked with Lonius in the past. And even though you said he doesn't need pretty prototypes, boy, he puts a lot of time. Oh man.
1: His, yeah. I've seen the one you guys are working on and it's, it's pretty insane. I was like, this is not the real artwork. Okay. We're okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think there are pros and cons to that. First of all, if it's early on in the design. I wouldn't spend a lot of time on that because you're going to sure, have to sure, change sure. a lot of things and you're going to have to reprint and reprint and reprint. And you don't want to waste all that ink on beautiful artwork. Our original prototypes are very much Word documents. Oh, yeah. Just text on cards. Now, yep. before you put it in front of people, nobody wants to play with that except for a designer. So you certainly do need to find some clip art to put in there, but don't spend any money on it. Like, no, no not at all. Not at all. Yeah, just do Google image searches and you'll be fine. The internet is vast. (laughs) Exactly. The one thing, it's funny because you said make it look good and I agree with that. But for me, one of the things I put is gameplay is key. So if you have a choice of spending time on the design and making sure that's as clean as possible or spending time on the graphic design, I would say put it into the design first. And that is because when people sit down, You want them to have a good time, and that way they talk about it with their friends. I'll give a perfect example. We had a beautiful prototype. I knew it wasn't quite ready for, it was an Unpub Mini we went to. I knew the difficulty was off, and I just didn't get time to fix it. And I was like, this is almost a waste of my time, because literally every comment we got was, wow, the difficulty seems too easy on this game. And especially with a co-op, I'm like, yeah, I knew that was all the feedback I was going to get. Now, I started changing my pitch later in the day saying the balance isn't quite right yet. It's a little bit easy, but what do you think of the actions and going from there? So you can still make it work, but it is the first thing that pops into everybody's mind when they play a game where the balance is a little bit off. They're going to focus on that one or two things.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. Now, would you, I guess a question for the both of you kind of, I think you've probably been doing Unpub longer than I have, but do you feel that, a a majority of the games there and this is just an observation on my part maybe it's just kind of you know limited narrow focus but it seems like most of the games there are in more of an advanced stage than in years past now I think people are almost using these as like pitching cons as opposed to playtesting cons and I'm just curious on your thoughts if if I'm just kind of off base or I think you know it's I think there still are those different stages that people are at but it, it seems like a lot more are like either on Kickstarter, already going to Kickstarter, or literally just trying to draw a publisher in to pitch it kind of thing.
2: What I see a lot of, I, I agree with you, first of all, overall. And, I mean, that that's how we go, too. Like, we we will usually have at least one game that we feel is at the level that we at least want to hook in a publisher to help us develop it. Not like, the mm-hmm. game's 100% done. We would not put it on Kickstarter. I don't think we've ever gone to an unpub with a game that was, like, Kickstarter-ready or on Kickstarter. But I, I think it is a common thing to... I'm sure you're here too. Most designers are working on multiple designs at one time. Yeah. And it seems sort of natural to have one game that's really close to being done that you're really proud of. And Unpub does have publishers there, so you might be able to find somebody who might be interested in the game. And what I'll usually see is people will start with that game. And then like later on in the day, or the second day, or even like on the Sunday, they'll bust out those two other designs that aren't really that great yet. And they'll get some feedback on them. So I most of the designers I see are kind of playing in the field I guess a bit. Sure. They're they're both getting the good uh playtesting experience and also trying to in a way sell a game that they think is closer to being ready. And that's pretty much where I think we are usually too. So yeah, I'm not sure if that's I don't feel like that's against the spirit of Unpub?
1: No, I don't think it's a problem. I just something I've noticed cuz I I like getting into the the kind of the nitty-gritty, the dirty of like the early stage stuff. Like that for me is fun. I feel like your feedback is more valuable. They're not just kind of looking to run you through it and time it. You know what I mean? Kind of, you know, something like
2: yeah. that where it's Well, and and that that's a big thing that I think is a a bad choice to make a design as a designer at Unpub. If you go to an event like Unpub and think your design is done and that there is no way to make it better, then I think you're wasting a lot of people's times. And not only that, but you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of hurt feelings for yourself and some playtesters. And you know, I know Peter and I have had some experiences like this where we'll play somebody's game and we'll start giving them suggestions and they'll clearly not be listening or even tell us, you know, I think that's fine. And that's okay, you know, it's their game, they have the right to say that. But yeah, it, it is. it does seem a little disingenuous, and like, why are you here if <laughs> you don't even want to hear suggestions on your game? Even if it's very close to publication and looks beautiful, like, you don't want to hear anything about the mechanics that could be better? I mean, almost every game can be improved slightly, right?
1: Yeah, agreed. But that said, I, I love Unpub. Like, don't get me wrong, I, I, I think it's a fantastic convention. So I don't want any of those observations to color people the wrong way.
2: Oh, I, I hope not. We we adore the event,
0: definitely. I don't remember the first one I went to. I think it was on pub 2 or 3. And it was a very different feel back then. There was literally just designers sitting around. There was very little yeah. public that came. There were very few publishers even that came to some of those earlier ones. They were out in the middle of nowhere in Delaware. And the nice part about those, and I think some of it has carried over, is you're also not only getting help from each other, but you're also getting to know these people, yeah. and when you're doing that, you always want to put your best foot forward, and I think that's sometimes why people put their shiniest game up at least first anyway. It's like if if I'm showing something to a bunch of people who don't know me, it's hard enough, as you said already, to do that because you're that fear of failure, so you like getting that good feedback, and I mean, it can almost be a problem sometimes because it's like, okay, I, I almost focus... You can almost focus too much on that positive feedback mm-hmm. where you really do need that that harsh criticism sometimes. It's like, no, this part sucks. Like, you need to cut it. <laughs> I'll give that to you. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but I think that might be part of the reason that people typically show their best and especially f- coming from you who is a podcaster, people will come up to you knowing that you have a voice in the community and they want to show you what they've got that's best. Yep. Sometimes. And, and I think that might be part of it.
1: Uh, and I didn't want it to sound like a negative. I was just kind of, from observations, I'm just curious, which I just wanted to hear what you guys thought. But, oh, um, uh,
2: I mean, 100% definitely has leaned, especially since it went to the Baltimore Convention Center, it has leaned towards uh, more polished and more refined games. Mm-hmm. So, uh, something I wanted to say that I, th- I think does rep- uh, kind of join with the idea of like practicing explaining your game and all of that. And this is actually something I think, Peter, you talked about, and you had maybe gotten it from uh, Ignacy, who did uh, Robinson Crusoe and stuff. You want to think about what experience you want players to have. And this is a bit more for selling the game, but I think it also applies to, like, getting your best foot forward for playtesters. Do they need to play a full game, or can you play through a sort of truncated 20-minute version and still get some useful feedback on the core mechanics? Uh, Do you need to introduce every rule, or can you teach things as they go and only introduce these three most important rules? Do you need to have all of the cards in the game, or can you get away with just these ten cards, because in a single playtest, that'll still give them enough variety to give them an idea for the game? So, I I know that we had this problem early on. We felt like everything had to be explained sometimes, and uh, everyone had to play an entire game, and if they didn't, it was like a failed playtest, And the thing is, at these events, you often aren't going to get people who are ready to commit to you and your game for the full playtime of it, especially if it's, you know, going over, I mean, gosh, even 45 minutes is sometimes too much to ask for uh, for some playtesters. So, at the very least, have variety. Like, hey, here's a short version you can play, or if you want to play the full game. Or, hey, if you like the short version, next we can try the full game. But be ready to kind of cater your experience to your playtesters, be ready to adapt the play experience to your playtesters,
0: and have some kind of different experiences planned in general. And don't be afraid to bail. Yes. If a group is sitting there miserable and you can see it on their faces, they start pulling out their phones all the time and they don't want to be there, stop the play test, get their feedback. Maybe they either just don't like that kind of game or maybe your game is failing, and sometimes that happens. And don't be afraid to pull back it and just stop a playtest mid-playtest. People will appreciate it, and that will bring them back in future years, too. Because, mm-hmm. I-, I mean, especially if you're planning on designing games, we're not doing this as a living. We do this as our hobby. If you want – if you're going to go back year after year, which we plan on doing, even though we're doing this as a hobby, you want people to want to come to your table, it was cool our like third year when we had like people waiting at our table for us when we got there, you know, because they knew that they had liked stuff that they had played with us the year before. And, you know, some of those people are gonna be disappointed if you don't have a good game this year, but you can at least cut that experience and they know that they can come back again in the future, and if they aren't having a good time, they'll at least know that you're willing to cut the play test off. Whereas if you make people suffer through two hours of an awful playtest. They're never gonna to want to come back to your table again, even if you have <laughs> the best game in the world.
1: Yep. Oh man, I've been stuck in a few of those, and I was like, I think the last time that happened was at Origins, and thankfully the hall was closing, and that was like my way out because I was like, <laughs> I saw no end to this playtest.
2: Oh man, I'm so sorry. This game is this game is so great. Sorry, man. <laughs> yeah, I
1: guess we have to leave. They're they're kicking us out. Um, <laughs> it's noon, Dan. No, I mean, I don't know what's going on with
0: this game. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, well, and yeah, the other thing the is, don't be that guy. Like, if you're playing in the game, which I highly recommend against if you can help it, but if you're playing in the game, don't just smack somebody down and show them the worst parts of your game. Like, <laughs> I know Mike was in a playtest with somebody, and it was a race game. And Mike was winning the race, and he was almost at the finish line. And this guy play- and you know, the designer himself is in last place by, like, a lot, and Mike's like, what's going on over here? And then he plays this card that, like, swaps their positions in the race, so this guy ends up <laughs> literally in first place by a lot. He's like, Haha, see how cool oh this god. card is? Oh my god, and he
2: he gloated about it. He was like, yeah, you didn't know that this card existed. Isn't that cool? And I was like, it's cool for you, man, but not for anyone else playing the game who would not know any of that card existed, so, I mean, I would say avoid gotcha mechanics and, like, Surprise <laughs> cards in your game in general, unless that's very much the type of game you're going for. But also, don't be a total jerk to everybody playing your game. Oh man, that's funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was real funny in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, yeah, I forgot about that one, Peter. Thanks
0: for bringing up painful memories. That was a good. That was a good unpub though. That was the one where we were there with Salvation Road and Vast was there right next to oh, us. Oh, Yeah. No, that-, that that was a great unpub except for that one (laughs) playtest. Speaking of
2: successful unpubs, if you define success as finding a publisher and you don't want to self-publish, the only thing that has worked for us, and we've been fairly successful in finding publishers, is actively approaching them and talking to them and asking them to come see your game. I know that's going to be tough for people. You know, Peter's a salesman. I'm a teacher. We both get up in front of people and talk a heck of a lot, so we have a lot of practice with it. And even for for me, it's still... You know, totally terrifying every time. But, yeah, you know, we went up to uh, AJ. We went up to uh, Chris from Dice Hate Me. We went up to Lanius, and we're like, Hey, we know you're Lanius. You want to play our game? You know, like, you you can't be starstruck. You can't be afraid of these publishers. Um, If you want any of them to ever see any of your stuff and ever want to work with you, you can't just kind of, like, hope they'll wander by. They might, but you need to take it into your own hands. Now, don't be annoying. Don't become incredibly defensive or upset if they don't actually make it over there. They're busy people, and they want to play the games they want to play. But at least put yourselves out there in a friendly way and say, hey, I would love if you would come over and check out my game. And then, you know, they might not do it until the next day. They might not do it at all, but at least you've given yourself the best shot to have the game seen, if, again, that's your goal, if you want... A uh, established publisher to see it and consider uh, helping you to get it uh, out to people in the real world.
1: That's a good one. I think a lot of people probably struggle with that, just you know, different personality types and things like that. So, I, oh, yeah.
2: absolutely. I mean, again, Peter and I have like everything in our favor. Oh, Peter has no yeah, shame. Peter has no shame at all, and it's still, <laughs> it's still absolutely terrifying. Oh yeah. When I when I went over to Lonius, you know, somebody who's designed some of my favorite games of all time, and I'm like, hi, uh. My name's Mike. Come over and I, I have a game. Yeah. Would you like to try it? You know what <laughs> Do you like board games? No. <laughs> yeah. I, do, do, do you know? My game has a board and cards.
0: <laughs> well, And it's funny because we work with Lonnie because of that play test. He came over and loved the game. And he's like, yeah, let's do something. Let's make this. Let's make it together. And let's make it happen. And so the game is very different from the game that we played with him. But... You know, that's what got us working with him is that he came over, he played our playtests, and he really enjoyed what we were doing. And so, yeah, you never know what's going to come of it. Maybe nothing, but maybe you'll make a new friend out of it.
2: Yeah, and the crazy thing is, at least in our experience, that the game you're playtesting might not be the game that happens with that person at all. It's a perfect example for, uh, for Dark Dealings. We had already worked with Nevermore and tried to get them to publish something else, and it just didn't work out but they had us in mind and were interested the next time we had designed to show them and everything uh, kind of fit into place at that point. Lonnie's was another great example. He came over to play dark dealings first, gave a ton of interesting uh, feedback for it. Some of which we used and some of which we didn't. And that helped to get him over again for, uh, for checking out the game that we eventually designed with him. So yeah, like just, just being open to showing off things and just being friendly with people so that they like you. I'll kind of uh, you know I'm a I'm an actor as my former profession before I became a teacher, and it's the exact same thing as with acting. You know, you're not just auditioning for this role; you're auditioning for this person, this director, this theater company, this entire like city. If you're a jerk, if you're rude, word gets around, and nobody's going to ever want to work with you. Mm -hmm. But if you are friendly, if you are happy, if you have a sense of humor. Or if you can put those things on, if that's not necessarily your your default personality type, or if you can get a friend to come with you and they can kind of be the face of the uh, the whole operation, th- they'll, they'll remember you and they'll want to work with you in something at some point. Whether it's the game you're currently showing them or a co-design down the road, you, you're setting yourself up for
0: success by being friendly and just putting yourself out there. Well, and that's another point is if you can, have somebody come with you. Even if you don't co-design with somebody, if you've got a lead playtester, somebody who plays your games a lot, somebody who can help you demo, because they are long days. I know, especially for Unpub, the main one, it's three straight days of showing off games. It's exhausting after a while. You know, And when you're not showing off games, maybe you're playtesting other people's games, and that's another part of it. Certainly go in there with the mindset that you're not just going to test your game. You're going to help other people with their games as well, because that is a fun part of the process as well. That's the best part. Yeah. When you work on other people's games, it gives you ideas for your games. And maybe it has nothing to do with what their game is, but all of a sudden it sparks something. And it's like, well, this wouldn't be good for your game, but wow, that's just the thing I needed for my game And, you know, it'll be tangentially related, but just the design discussion that happens between designers as you're playtesting games can sometimes be just that spark you need for either something you're working on or for your next project.
1: Yep, completely agree.
0: Dan, any other uh,
2: questions you have or any other kind of points you want to make with your experience with uh, playtesting and such?
1: I mean, the biggest thing I've kind of learned, and I've learned it the hard way, um, is that not all feedback is good feedback. Um <laughs> absolutely. I, yeah, I know like going into it and like you said, you get a little bit starstruck if, you know, you know, I'm really good friends with like Ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle. I love all their games, but I've become really really good friends with them. And, you know, they sat down and played my game and it's like whatever you guys say, whatever you guys say. Or, you know, it, or just the fact that people are sitting down at your game and giving you feedback. It's like, "Great, I'll take that into it, you know." And you just You have to develop it. I think it's something that you work on, but just kind of understanding what your game is and keeping that first and foremost in your head, what you want it to be. Like you said, what that feeling is you want people that are playing it to have and then dissect and digest that feedback that you get over the weekend afterwards in that kind of context through that lens and not just implement any kind of change and test it, and you know, because I mean, iteration is great, but if you're iterating without a a specific goal in mind or a specific feeling or mechanic or anything, like it just becomes lost a lost cause at some point. And I've learned that the hard way. As I'm sitting here, you know, two years on from my my Storm Chasers game, I, it's funny. My my like you, my my really good friend Steve and I, who we play test it frequently. I'm putting in a lot of the things that I originally had because they were the feeling I wanted to give the player but I took them out because of some feedback that I received that may or may not have been good at the time but I kind of strayed from my course and it's just it's just we keep laughing because I'm putting in a lot of my original thoughts um, because they wound up actually being what I wanted the game to be and then taking all that feedback tangentially and feeling out where that could fit in and where it can't so yeah my my biggest piece of advice to everyone is just while it's awesome to get feedback you just have to be cognizant that it's not all good and it's not all what you want for your game that's not to say that people aren't well-intentioned or you know don't want your game to be successful it's just you have to kind of really kind of stick to your guns and what you want your game to be because it is your game and you know it better than anyone else kind of thing so
0: so i have two thoughts on that number one is Write everything down, and Mike is way better at this than I am. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Write everything you hear down, whether you think it's good or not, because if you write the same thing down three or four times throughout the course of the weekend, guess what? Even if you don't agree with it initially, there's probably something there. Where there's smoke, there's fire, especially when you keep hearing the same feedback over and over. But especially on a long, unpub-type weekend, don't expect to remember every piece of feedback you get. You have to write it down as you get it or you're never going to remember it. And I mean, you might not have any intention of doing anything with it, but you should still write it down because, again, if you keep hearing it over and over, that'll at least trigger something. Or maybe they don't have the right exact thing. Maybe they're like, well, I felt like it was too long between my turns or something like that. And maybe that wasn't really the problem, but maybe they just felt like there wasn't anything they could do on the downtime, right? Maybe it wasn't actually long downtime. So so maybe there's a problem there and you're like, no, there's only 30 seconds between your turns. But maybe they were just telling you that they were bored. So it's the feelings that, you're, that they're having that is the more important thing because maybe it's not exactly what they're telling you, but there might be something behind that.
1: No, I completely agree with that. If you're not writing stuff down, then... I'm not sure you just you know you're you're in the right place cuz that's, <laughs> that's you know what I mean like that's that's what you're there to do you're there to observe you're there to take data and you know just kind of iterate on it and think on it and all that good stuff and that's that's half the fun of design I think for a lot of people is the the kind of the engineering of the game the thought process the analytic like I love the problem solving piece of it and that's it kind of like really just hits on all of my my um creative cylinders there so Completely agree with you though, Peter. Like you know, I. It's not to say all feedback's bad. Again, yeah, like you said, like you have to take it in the context as provided, and I think that touches on what you said earlier. Is if you can sit out and watch the game without playing, it it really opens up things a lot more for you because you're not having to focus on some of the things that are involved in actually playing the game. You can actually just sit back, observe body language, observe checking of cell phones, things like that, um, which are which are all valuable pieces of info.
2: Yeah, the, the, the one thing I was going to say is it's interesting psychologically how vulnerable we are when we're doing creative endeavors, at least for me, and I, I imagine for, for both of you too. Oh, it's brutal. And it's just kind of funny because, you know, in most activities in the world, if you heard a single person's uninformed opinion on something, you would not take that extremely to heart. You know, if somebody random on the street came up to you and gave you, like, this diatribe about which political party is the best party, I don't think you would kind of let that change your whole worldview and you'd go home and, like, feel like you have to change your life. But you get a single bad playtest, and even, like, one bad playtester where four other people loved the game. And it's like every word they say is absolutely true, and you need to change it now because your game is terrible. And, yeah, you do have to, like Dan said, take some time. And like Peter said look for trends. You know, one playtester out of 20 means almost nothing because no game is going to appeal to every market type or every type of gamer. And some people are just having a bad day and they just might have had a bad playtest through no fault of your game. Now, if 10 people play the game and all 10 of them say this is a problem and it's not like a core, most important mechanic that like totally defines your game, then yes, definitely consider changing that. But yeah, it just is interesting how easy it is for a negative comment to totally shake us up when, by mm-hmm. all kind of logical rights, it should not have that power.
1: Yeah. It's, yeah. It's powerful, though.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And that fear can keep you from bringing your game out, you know? And I, I say this to Dan all the time. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. He's like, oh, it's not ready. It's not ready. I'm like, just bring it by. You know, it doesn't have to be ready. But that fear sometimes can keep us from getting it to the table. Sometimes that's all you need to do, though, because you need to see a different person play it that hasn't played it before or hasn't played it in a while. And maybe all their ideas are awful, but maybe they'll spark something or something will come out of that play test. The other thing I wanted to say for, for new designers who come out of a, an unpub, because you can be discouraged and feel like you have to change everything about your game, and you may do that, and you may do that 12 to 16 times guess what? You're not the only one. We all go through that. That is exactly what we were talking about earlier. Game design is about iteration. And so some of those things, it's funny, Dan, you were talking about going back to some of the original things you had. We've done that a lot of times, but you almost have to test all the other things to see why that original thing was so good.
1: Yeah, no, definitely.
0: And so don't don't get discouraged by yourself. If you're going backward on the design, you have to roll it back somewhere. You tried something new and it just broke everything in the game. Well, guess what? Go back to your last version or go back to something you had earlier or try something different. And eventually you're going to hit on the thing that sparks the fun. And so it really is. It's really about perseverance. So don't leave one of these discouraged. Mm -mm. You know, I know our first couple, I was certainly discouraged because we didn't get any of our games signed and like they were terrible and we're never going to come up with anything good. (laughs) Yeah, this all sounds very familiar. But, you know, once you get past that, you realize that everybody's games are that way at some point and they all become good
2: or you move on because eventually there is a time to retire a game idea or you know let it morph into something entirely new
0: absolutely anybody have any last thoughts
1: good on pub it's a lot of fun great convention. it is
2: the best yeah whether whether you're designing or just play testing
1: it's a blast i'm so sad i'm missing it this year
0: yeah if you're in the baltimore area please come by and see us I, be, I mean, if we're the same table we've been the last couple of years, we're table 1A. So we're right there by the front entrance as you come in. But if not, just look us up in the flyer. It's going to be under my name, Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly. So look us up and come by and play some games with us. You know we're going to have co-ops there. We, we will because <laughs> we're designing one right now. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us again, Dan. Any uh, Anything you want to give, like where people should reach out to you if they want to talk to you more, they want to find out more about Storm Chasers, all the publishers that listen, where should they contact you at?
1: <laughs> Twitter is probably easiest, uh, at League Nonsense or at Scandalous underscore NAD. Email dan at com, and then the website is nonsensicalgamers.com. And thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah, No,
2: Dan, it's been awesome. We would love to have you on again. Uh, although I know you, you know, you're not playing the pants off of all the co-op games out there. But <laughs> anytime we uh, play one you have an interest in, we'd love to have you back.
1: I definitely. I have a couple in the reserve. I'll talk to Peter about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks for joining us again. We will talk to you guys again in two weeks. Bye, bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-OpCast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material if you want to contact us feel free to follow us on twitter at Games or email us at Games at gmail.com
2: uh so peter you want to tell us about the theme of the game
0: yeah so in ghost stories you are trying to prevent your town from being overrun by ghosts who are attacking it and that is basically it there is a wu fang which has was like this I actually don't know the theme. I'm just making this up as I go. But Wu-, <laughs> Wu Feng was this bad guy years ago, I'm assuming, and his incarnation has come back to like haunt the village, right?
1: Yeah, that, that's the gist.
2: Then you uh, also run out of time and lose the game that way.
0: All right, we're going to need to do that all over again. Oh, really? I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> oh. I, 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 I was like, crap, what did I miss? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, uh, I did have... My phone, like, I have my earbud in. You probably saw that. But the phone was, like, all the volume was coming out through my phone. So I'm going to have to, like, mute my track the entire first half. I'm, like, looking at the thing, and it's, like, bouncing up and down. I'm like, what is going on over there? I'm like, oh, because it's not coming through my earbud at all. All right. Well, let's end with Dan, because he went over a lot of his final thoughts. But, Mike, let's get to your final thoughts first. Mike?
2: Oh, I'm sorry. When you said end with Dan, I was like, Dan's going to talk first. And that's (laughs) not at all what end with even means slightly. Um...
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I think... Oh, go ahead.
1: No, no, no. I was going to say, I find it fun to be... I I stuttered because I was, I don't know, choking or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't do
0: that. You're all choked up.
1: And you know it better than anyone else kind of thing. So that's my long-winded way of saying... Yeah. <laughs> what I just said.
0: <laughs> yeah. And just the second part of that was, um, my mind blanked for one second. I know it's here, right here. <laughs> uh,
1: Cotton candy. You were going to talk about cotton candy <laughs> and your love.
0: For we we're it. going to talk about cotton candy. Again. Yeah. Gosh, it was right there. And I thought it was
2: important too, but I can't. Well, something I wanted to say in relation to that, um, Wow. Okay. Clearly, we it's layers too. I've st-
1: I've stumped you both. Goodbye.